are the baseball writers the right ones to be, to be, uh, you know, in charge of that? You know, the morals class, those guys I used to hang out with in hotel bars. I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. Hey, everybody. It's Justin Shackle welcoming you to episode 17 of Toe in the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. Every week, we talk baseball with a deep focus on the art of pitching. We do it with the former Cy Young Award winner, the five-time World Series champ, David Cohn, the research maven, James Smythe, and myself. And David, it is Hall of Fame week. And we also have one of the most highly touted young pitchers in the game joining us here this week in Josiah Gray. Yeah, you know, it just makes me feel really good about the future of the game when you talk to young players like Josiah Gray and the way they handle themselves, their curiosity, their professionalism, just makes me feel good about, you know, uh, the game we love, that we all love, that it's in good hands and that the next generation of players are not only extremely talented, but they love the game and they respect the game and they, they want to they want to do right by themselves, their family, their careers and the game itself. So I was really impressed to hear what Josiah Gray had to say about his upbringing in New Rochelle, the local kid done good. And to acknowledge the fact that just making it to the big leagues, you grew up in New Rochelle, New York, and you just make it to the big leagues. That's a big deal. That's a huge accomplishment to say, I made it. I made it to the big leagues. I'll never forget that feeling when I was in the minor leagues of, well, if I could just make it for one day, one day in the big leagues, it will all have been worth it. Uh, and the doubt and the, you know, and the insecurities that come along the way with that. But yes, he's an impressive young pitcher, well thought of in the industry, which is reason why he's been traded a couple of times already, because people want him. That's a good thing. And the names he's been traded for, you know, when he went to the Dodgers and then to the Nationals, you know, names like Trey Turner and Max Scherzer. It shows you how well, how highly thought of he is in the game today. And he's got a chance to to really solidify himself in that Nats rotation this year. So he's a fun watch, fun guy to follow. And what a, what a great attitude he had to be able to come on our show and, and talk to us and give us some insight. I was thoroughly impressed. And Josiah Gray was drafted in 2018 out of division two Lemoyne college up in, in near Syracuse, New York. He was drafted by the Reds. He was traded to the Dodgers in the package that brought Yasiel Puig and Matt Kemp and a couple of others to Cincinnati he was the centerpiece in that trade and then along with Kiebert Ruiz this past summer he wore he was one of the two big pieces going to the Nationals in exchange for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner so like you mentioned he's been doing something right because he's kind of been in demand so now he's gonna be part of that rebuild in the Nationals organization with their pitching rotation and he looks to be a a long-term answer for Washington in the rotation. I think this is one of the cool things about what we're doing on this podcast, because last week we literally had one of the greatest pitchers of all time on the pod in Greg Maddox. And here we have a 24 year old just getting started on his big league journey, but he's also just Josiah Gray's a great example. I think of a late bloomer when it comes to things like college recruiting and then taking advantage of some opportunities when they come at you from a, from a small division two school. And I think there's a lot to learn from Josiah Gray. If you're a young player right now, maybe hoping to play in college, or maybe you're in college, you're trying to get to that next level. There's a lot you can take away from a guy like Josiah Gray, if nothing else, maybe his inquisitive nature, because James, there's a lot to unfold from what he was able to do in a small sample size in 2021, but 
from, I think, what we took away from the conversation, what you read about with what others are saying around the game, this dude asks a lot of questions. He's really into some of the underlying stats and kind of what makes him tick on the mound. Right. It was cool to hear him talk about how he liked knowing all of these these numbers and trying to inform his uh, strategies on the mound a little, a little better. And it's it's great to to hear and to see a guy who wasn't even really a full time pitcher until a couple of years into his college career. And to, to have this rise to the big leagues is really impressive. And it's for someone who might not have seen much of him pitch at all. Uh, during his rookie year, he's 14 big league games under his belt, but it's somebody that uh, it's easy to root for a guy like Josiah. And, and as he moves along in his big league career. And we talk about what it's like being ranked as you know one of the top prospects in the game twice. He, he was ranked in the top 100 now kind of graduating from prospect status and trying to find his way as a young big league pitcher. We, we touch on some of his arsenal talking about fastball command, but also a curveball really stood out along with the slider and how those breaking pitches really work. So there's a lot to touch on with Josiah and also being a resident of the same town as Mariano Rivera. I thought that was pretty interesting too. So you're going to hear some stories with him and, and Mo Rivera as well. But as we get started here on toe in the slab, we always do it with the opener from David. What do you have here this week, Coney? Well, you know, it's a, kind of a sad, uh, you know, day when, you know, when you hear that, you know, the legendary musician Meatloaf passed away and there's an obvious Yankee connection for those of you that know, if you know, you know, and his famous uh, album, Bad Out of Hell and then Paradise by the Dashboard Lights with Phil Rizzuto in the middle of the, of the song or actually towards the end of the song and, you know, classic Phil Rizzuto, uh, you know, calling of a, of a play, you know, still in second base, getting a third base, trying to steal home and, some of the metaphors behind that, whether he actually knew what was going on with meatloaf and the double entendre or whatever he was trying to, trying to, <laughs> you know, uh, get into the, the lyrics on that song. Uh, Scooter knew what was going on. He had to know Scooter, Scooter played, uh, you know, uh, you know, like he was sly, like a Fox, but you know, it was just legendary. You know, I was in the 94 all-star game and meatloaf sang the national anthem. I'll never forget. It, but he was fantastic. This rock opera kind of a voice he had. He was dynamic. He was a big Yankee fan. Had a house up in Stamford, Connecticut for a while. Lived in Stamford, a local. Uh, was involved with Don Mattingly and Don Mattingly's charity endeavors. I went to a charity event where Meatloaf was on the mic that night during hang, handling the auction. And he was dynamic. He lit up the room and raised a bunch of money for, for charity. Called everybody out in the room. Uh, he just had that kind of personality that left a mark on you. If, if you knew him, if you were around him, and even if you didn't, just with his music. So hats off and, uh, you know, rest in peace to, to one of the greats, Meatloaf, and, and his baseball connection to Phil Rizzuto and Don Mattingly and the Yankees. I didn't know the connection ran that deep, though, with him and the Yankees. I obviously knew about Phil Rizzuto's cameo, I guess you could call it, in, yeah. in his, you know, his hit. Was he, did he ever come around when you were in uniform when you were playing? Did he ever come around to the stadium? Yeah, we saw him, you know, at that All Star game in '94. But then at right. Yankee Stadium, then as well, uh, he was closer with Don Mattingly. So uh, when I was there in '95, when I first got traded to the Yankees, uh, I saw him in the playoffs. You know, he, okay. he came out. Uh, Meatloaf came out, so we we got a chance just to kind of say hi, hi and bye real quick. But it was more on the charity circuit scene that that I that I met him. Even back to my days with the Mets when. You know, Don Mattingly had a charity event and you, you had a chance to go. You went because I was such a 
you know, such a fan of Don Manningly before I even was a teammate with his. So, you know, meeting you know, Meatloaf, the way he took over that charity event, and that's near and dear to my heart because, you know, you know, I've been doing a lot of charity events over the New York area for over 35 years, and I know, you know, how tough it can be for some of these fundraisers uh, to raise money. And when you get somebody like Meatloaf, grab the mic and run the auction the way he did, he just lit it up. I was a fan of his from then on. Uh, even more so than, than I was from, than just from his music. So yeah, he was that kind of character and that kind of a good goodwill doer too, in terms of uh, his charitable activities over the years and, and his closeness with Don Manley. Donnie Baseball can probably tell you a lot of great meatloaf stories because uh, he helped him out. Uh, he helped Donnie out, raise a lot of money for very worthwhile causes over the years. That's awesome. He was a coach. He was a, a girls high school softball coach in Reading, Connecticut. There you go. The yeah. Big, big fan of uh, baseball, softball. Interesting. Okay. I honestly, I thought the only connection was Rizzuto and now I've definitely learned something very nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I did read about just how, how charitable of a person he was. So I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know the connection ran deep with a guy like Mattingly and, and everything that he did there. So that's, that's good to hear, David. Wonderful. Good way to open it up here. Um, Something from last week that I, I kind of just found this on my desk that I forgot that I brought it here. Remember, we had Greg on, obviously. We had Greg Maddox, and he was talking about arguably his, you know, one of his most influential coaches in his career, Dick Pohl. And uh, if you're watching the YouTube stream, I was able to find this at my, my parents' house over the weekend. And it's a, uh, a Dick Pohl 1978. What do we have here? What brand is this? It's tops. Yeah, it is tops. Yeah, uh, tops from, from Dick Pohl, 1978. So there you go. Uh, taught, taught Greg Maddox how hitters remember success. And uh, not to forget that. So that kind of long time, long time big league pitching coach had a hell of a career mm-hmm. for, for, yeah. and influenced a lot of pitchers along the way. I pulled that. I meant to show you guys and it just grabbed my attention. So there you go. Uh, Dick Pohl here on, on Tone of the Slab. All right, Josiah Gray. Joined us on Toe in the Slab this week. Nationals pitcher, just turned 24 years of age from New Rochelle, New York. Obviously, you know, not a, not a hotbed for, for baseball stars. It's kind of tough trying to find your footing as a, as a baseball player in this day and age. Growing up in the Northeast, there are a lot of obstacles that you kind of have to overcome and work around compared to the youngster who kind of has it made all year round in places like Florida and Texas and Georgia, California and all that stuff. So, uh, a great story, and he really has emerged as one of the top pitching prospects over the last several years. He's done it with a lot of hard work, and like we said, kind of an inquisitive nature that has brought to him at this point in his career, trying to carve his path, part of that Washington Nationals rotation. This week's guest here on Tone of the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, it is right-hander Josiah Gray of the Washington Nationals. Josiah, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast this week. We are recording this on a Monday in late January. I know you were in a workout earlier today. What is a typical workout like for Josiah Gray at this point in the offseason, late January? Yeah, late January, you know, we're picking up bullpens uh, twice a week, getting ready for, you know, camp to start in the middle of February. So doing bullpens twice a week and then strength training here and there. Um, I'm around three days a week now. Uh, but yeah, you know, doing conditioning every day, making sure I'm ready, you know, to go out there in spring training in the best shape I can be in and, and go out there and win a job. I'm always curious when 
pitchers, especially they talk about strength training. It feels like there's an intensity that always increases as the years go by with new methods and stuff like that. And I know, you know, David, you've, you've touched on this with prior guests and how far we've come with some of the conditioning that goes on in an off season. So take us through some of those drills, some of those exercises, what do you got going on? Yeah. So I've been training down at uh, Eric Cressy, uh, Cressy sports performance down here in Florida. And, you know, it's a little different than what I'm used to. Um, up as opposed to, you know, up in the north. So, you know, we have like a long warm up, um, a lot of stuff tailored to you. And then you go out, you know, you'll throw and do all that stuff. But then you'll come back into the gym after you're done throwing and you'll have, you know, a lot of med ball drills and some body movement stuff before your workout. So, you know, your heart rate's going, you're, you're kind of, I sweat a lot. So I'm sweating a lot all over the gym. Um, and then I pick back up my workout and, uh, you know, my days are long, but yeah, it's, you know, constant move, constant, you know, keeping the heart rate up, making sure that, you know, the muscles are getting built and, and your body's feeling good and things like that. I guess that's probably the, the thing we talk about with pitchers, Josiah. And, and again, thanks again for coming on, on the, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's the changes even in the last five years and, and what's going on in the major league level and in the minor league level and the training compared mm-hmm. to what you grew up with even. I mean, uh, you know, I, I know you're in your mid-20s, you know, and you mm-hmm. made your debut last year. And it was a big, big, big story for a kid from New Rochelle Absolutely. to be able to, to make his major league debut. Let's not overlook that. Making it to the big leagues is in and of itself a huge, huge accomplishment Absolutely. for anybody. So yourself included, obviously. So congratulations on that. Uh, you. you know, you know the, the thing, I guess the question I have for you is just, what you've seen since you've been since you've been in the minor leagues and the big leagues and wh- what you grew up with in New Rochelle and what you're learning now as far as training, whether you're using uh, weighted baseballs or not so much running, more more tailored activity for how the body moves, I think, and biomechanics is probably one of the, the biggest changes out there. Yeah, honestly, uh, you know, when I was in college, we didn't do too much running. Uh, it was mostly, you know, college or your days are you have to fit them in, in between classes and things like that. So you know, it was one of the things we didn't do much of. But once I got to professional baseball, got drafted, you know, you're running every day. You know, you have a starter routine. Obviously, you know, day one is your longer run. Uh, and then, you know, you tailor it back to your start day. Um, so then having that routine and then once I was traded over to the Dodgers, it was sort of the same. But, you know, our first two or three weeks in spring training, we'd be doing the reliever conditioning with them. So it'd be like, you know, ladder drills, short sprints, um, you know, shuttles, things like that, kind of just keeping us quick. And then once we started, you know, we finished two or three live BPs and we're starting to get back into games, then we got on our routine. So that's kind of how it was uh, with LA. And then with, you know, the nationals, it's, it's the same thing, start a routine, but, you know, it's a lot of tailored to you. So it's like one day you might not feel the greatest. So, you can go inside and go do 15 minutes of, you know, the bike or the elliptical, or you're feeling really good that day. You can go outside, go for a 20 minute run. So I would say what I've seen has tailored to more just to fit what you're feeling for that day, because, you know, some days you feel better than others and you kind of have to adjust your schedule to that. And that's what I've seen a lot of uh, recently. David, how much was it more of a, a cookie cutter mindset in terms of developing and, and passing information along to pitchers? 
during the the 90s, the the 2000s, more so now, because we're we're hearing a lot of what Josiah has been talking about in that phrase, tailor made. I don't. I, I'm I'm wondering how much of that happened when when you were on the field. Big difference for me, you know. I mean, you're talking about you know I was in the minor leagues in the 1980s, you know. So you know we're talking about a long time ago, and it, it was more you know I learned more from opposed from my teammates for watching them pitch from, uh, you know, they say osmosis, just where you learn by watching, you know, the old Yogi saying you, you learn a lot by observing. And uh, uh, that, that to me was more important. When I got to the Mets, I learned from watching Doc Gooden and watching Ron Darling, those guys, how they went about it, how they changed speeds, how they got certain hitters out their mindset. Uh, you know, I, I I'm, I'm envious, uh, you know, and, and I guess another question I'd have for Josiah is that, you know, I, I would love to have the high speed cameras. I'd love to know what my numbers are. You know, do you know what your numbers are? Do you know what your spin rate is? And, you know, all those inside numbers, all the all that's available to you. How much are you into that? Oh, I love that stuff. Uh, once I got traded over to the Dodgers, you know, they're as good as it comes in terms of, you know, just interpreting that for the players. So I, you know, fell in love with the data. I know my uh, spin rate numbers. I know what I should be looking for, things like that. And, you know, that's sort of a tool I've taken to the big leagues because, you know, there's not as much information available, but, you know, we have these iPads in the dugout so I can see, okay, I'm throwing my fastball where I need it to be or, or where I think I need it to be, and this is what I can work on, maybe a minor tweak here and there. Uh, but, yeah, I love the data. I think it's an important tool along with, you know, the, I guess, quote-unquote, old-fashioned way of pitching as well. You know, I think the two mesh together to uh, basically create a complete picture. You know, have you have you found uh, any direction so far? I know, obviously, it's a good thing. You know, a lot of times when you're traded, is you know, a lot early in your career, you kind of wonder, what am I doing wrong? It's actually the opposite. It's what you're doing right. You were wanted so much. Dodgers wanted you. Obviously, the Nationals wanted you. Think about the guys you were traded for. I mean, it's a pretty big name. Trey Turner, Max Scherzer. Shows you how much value you have. Uh, have you gotten on board with with the Nationals and their pitching philosophy in terms of the shape of your pitches? Are you are you working on maybe a little little different shape on your slider, or your curveball, or trying to get a better feel for your changeup to get that in the mix a little bit more? Yeah, towards the end of the year, uh, you know, myself, Jim Hickey, and our bullpen coach, you know, we we're just working on fine tuning things, sort of just giving us a good um, building block for this year. Um, spring training and then taking that into the season. So, yeah, we were, you know, fine-tuning the curveball, fine-tuning the slider, uh, finding a little bit more efficient change-up in terms of just getting into the zone and, you know, also the command of every pitch. So, uh, you know, towards the end of the year, you know, we just started to focus a little bit more on bullpens and um, that sort of uh, external focus that, you know, I thrive with. That was a big, big uh, point of our, you know, late season bullpens, late season games. And um, that's something I'm definitely going to take into this year and then years to come. And it's, there's a lot of ways, you know, we can go here. We definitely want to touch on you growing up in a place like New Rochelle, just north of New York, being a, a D2 baseball player, uh, some of the trades. But this rookie season and James, maybe coming in here in, in terms of what the numbers said about Josiah's rookie campaign that first taste of the big leagues in 2021 because and the numbers they they from the surface they look like you got roughed up that wasn't the the case though over the 12 13 games there was a lot to unpack 
with some of those starts. I know there was a four start stretch. You probably want to forget, but maybe you want to draw from that more than, than from your success. But James, what stands out from a numbers perspective with Josiah's first season in the bigs? Well, Coney, you've mentioned this before, how, you know, a couple of bumpy starts can really blow up your ERA uh, and not really show how, uh, not really show an accurate picture of how someone pitched. So the first five starts with the Nats, 289 ERA and finishing strong, 312. And like Justin said, it was just a a four start kind of rough patch there. But you look at the underlying numbers, the curveball and slider are both really good, hard, hard pitches. Yeah. The curveball averaging 84 miles an hour, fourth hardest in the big leagues, slider coming in at 86. Just how you mentioned that your spin rates are, are, are above average and where they need to be. What jumps out to me is the fastball vertical movement, a lot more ride. So yeah. it's coming in at 95, but it might jump on the hitter faster and getting a lot of whiffs at the top of the zone. And that's another way to make the fastball play up. Absolutely. And so getting some swings and misses, that's great. But also, you led the major, major league starters in pop-up percentage. And that's something that people might not really think too much about. But those are basically like strikeouts. It's not an automatic out, but it's as close as could be to one. Oh, yeah. I, I, so, honestly, I, I didn't know that last one. Um, I, knew, I knew the other things she's doing that, but I didn't know that. I mean, you know, pop-ups, like you said, they're just like strikeouts. They're pretty much guaranteed, but uh, that's pretty interesting. So, I'll definitely uh, take advantage of that. Your fastball, uh, you say you like to hold your fingers really close. A lot of guys will spread them out. What is it that you that you like about your current fastball grip? So honestly, uh, growing up, I was just always close with my fingers and then didn't really put much uh, thought into it. And then when I got into pro ball, you know, guys would show us their grips and everyone would be like, I'm spread apart or I'm like this. And I was like, honestly, I – put my two fingers together and it feels comfortable. It feels normal. And that's always been the way I've thrown it, honestly. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I, the, the, the games I saw you pitch and a lot of the highlights were to me were the impressive part where you were very aggressive, aggressive with your fastball. You showed no fear when yeah. you were out there and maybe that led to a few extra home runs here and there your first time around the circuit you know, I know the, uh, you, you gave up eight of them on your fastball, but I like that. I like the fact that you're challenging hitters going right after them. I think, it, I think you're right on track with the training part with Cressy and what you're doing in the offseason. Make some big strides there strength-wise. Continue to work on your grips, shape, shape of your breaking balls. Get a change up that, that you can get some confidence in and mix that in. I don't see any reason why you shouldn't be in that rotation next year. I'm sure that's probably your goal and set your sights on that. But it's right there for the taking for you, you Josiah, just – Keep on keeping on what you're doing and, uh, you know, take that spot. That spot's yours. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, as a local New Yorker, you know, you got a lot of people pulling for you in this area that that saw you make your debut. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to next year. I think, you know, our rotation with Strasburg coming back, Patrick Corbin, you know, looking to have a bounce back year, and then myself. And then, you know, we have Joe Ross, Eric Fetty, um, some other guys, and I think there's definitely going to be – um, ample opportunity you know it's just about taking advantage of the opportunity and you know I feel like I'm putting in the right work so you know hopefully I'm gonna think of things you know when spring training starts and then the season starts I love the reaction Josiah was given if, if you're watching on the YouTube stream you'll see it too when James was spitting out the stats from 2019 he's kind of like yeah yep that's right yep keep them coming keep this list going and then he talked about the pop-up rate he was like oh oh you caught me off guard there I love that um with yeah. with, with 
the total package of 2021, do you draw more on those four rough starts or the other outings when you look back at your rookie campaign? Honestly, that's a great question. Oh, man. Uh, I, I think you do both. You know, when you're having a, a really good day, you're like, man, thinking about those past eight starts and you're like, man, I got some really good hitters out. I made some really good pitches. I pitched around some, you know, tough situations, things like that. But then, you know, when you have a not the best day or, you know, you're just in your head too much, you're like, man, if only I threw this pitch instead of that pitch or, you know, I got that ball a little bit more above the zone or maybe something as simple as just walking the guy and getting to the next hitter. Uh, you know, I think you you kind of battle between the, the two. So I would say I put obviously more effort into the good outings because, you know, you want to be positive. You want to just uh, have that reinforcement for your mind just to, you know, be able to replicate that when the next time comes. But, you know, you also uh, stay humble and, and keep yourself grounded because, you know, bad outings do happen and thinking about them and, and reminding yourself they do happen is human. And I think it keeps us, you know, aware of how things fluctuate in this game and, and just basically how you fight back and how you come back and, you know, just go out there and give your team a chance. You know, guys, one of the things I love about what we've done so far here, I mean, Josiah, we had Tom Glavin on not too long ago. We had Greg Maddox on last week, and they both talked about what they took away from the struggles that they had early on as a very young major leaguer. Tom was talking about how he kind of adopted that blank demeanor that he would always give for the rest of his career based on losing 17 games in, in 1988. And, and Greg talked about needing better command of, of his fastball, I think. Fastball or his changeup, I can't remember which one, but that was something that he really took away mm -hmm. from his first year or two. What do you feel like you figured out during that first big league season? Yeah, like you said with Greg Maddox, I think the command of the fastball is number one. Just being you know, a guy that throws a good amount of fastballs, they have to be commanded better. And I think my damage when it was done – was, you know, poor, poor command, things like that, uh, working behind in counts. So I would say the command of fastball, uh, you know, the efficiency with the breaking balls, you know, a lot of swing and miss, but they weren't in the zone as much as I feel like they could have been. So just utilizing the end zone breaking balls and then, you know, having to expand breaking balls to get the chase, get the swing and miss, things like that, I think just uh, takes a pitcher's arsenal to another level. And then, you know, just uh, – confidence i think the confidence piece is so essential that as you continue to grow in this game you know you're going to face guys like freddie freeman uh, bryce harper um you know in the nl in the nl east a lot of times pete alonzo you know if you're going out there with not your best confidence you know those guys they'll get to you so i think going out there with confidence and you know the command stuff and things like that uh, you know you give yourself an advantage and you give yourself you know, a leg up on the competition. I got, I got to go back and ask you about growing up in New Rochelle. You know, I know we're circling around here, but, you know, a little, a little bit. You ever see Mariano Rivera walking the streets? I know he's lived there for a long time. And maybe, maybe some of your influence. What was it like growing up in New Rochelle trying to be a baseball player as a, as a young kid? It's great. Uh, honestly, I've seen Mo a few times. He has a church uh, in the heart of New Rochelle. So I see him, 
somewhat often, you know, doing his daily errands or going to church or anything like that. But um, honestly, growing up in New Rochelle, all I knew was baseball. You know, it's not so much a baseball city, but being so close to the Yankees and the Mets, it's it's diehard as it comes. So, uh, you know, I just remember a lot of weekends, you know, playing baseball at the local fields, things like that. Uh, but be, being a football city, you know, it's hard to get a lot of fanfare or exposure um, in terms of the game of baseball. So that's probably where, you know, my lack of offers or lack of just um, interest came from, you know, trying to transition into the college game. But, you know, I, that didn't stop me, as we all know. Uh, but, you know, it's great. You know, I love being from there. It, it definitely is some sort of a homecoming when we go to play the Mets. And then, you know, when we play the Yankees, eventually it'll be a, a nice homecoming and um, be a sort of surreal moment every time we go back there. Was there any any coach or any, you know, in the, in the Little League uh, infrastructure there in New Rochelle that you want to shout out that was an influence on you coming up through or – you know, whether, whether it was a coach or a team you played for or any influence at all? Yes, yeah, so many, so many. Uh, but the one that comes to my mind is uh, Cesar Cooney. Uh, he was the travel ball coach for Tiger Sports Club, who was the local team I played for from age nine through uh, 16, 17. So, you know, my whole uh, youth ball career. And, you know, we would always go to these fun tournaments and, and things like that. A lot of memories still keep in touch. With a lot of those guys still keep in touch with him as well. Um, but yeah, you know, being from such a smaller community, you know, having players that love the game is so important, but then having an outlet, you know, to go play a tournament in New Jersey or, you know, being able to go down the perfect game in Georgia, you know, that's so important. And I think um, he was very influential in, you know, giving a lot of guys from their shell and surrounding cities, you know, the area, the opportunity to go down these places and just see new baseball. You know, touching on the showcase, the college route here, you said, and it's been well-documented, you weren't heavily recruited coming out of New Rochelle High School. You go to LeMoyne, Division Two, up near Syracuse, mm-hmm. and you play shortstop, you do some pitching as well. Things really change after your sophomore year. So going into that junior year at LeMoyne, mm-hmm. what was the transformation like? What exactly changed for you? Uh, honestly, just taking advantage of, you know, my raw abilities on the mound. You know, my coach, Scott Cassidy, uh, he played in the big leagues for a little bit. Um, but we had a conversation after my sophomore year summer, and he was like, man, I'm going to cut it to you straight. Uh, you're not going to be playing shortstop for us anymore. And I was, I was obviously upset, but we had a really, really good team that year. So I was sort of like, all right, like I can offer a lot for the team on the mound as opposed to, you know, being both uh, that year. So having that conversation and just being able to focus on pitching. So, you know, going to practice, getting my throwing in, but then being able to go into the weight room and take care of my body, you know, get stronger, uh, gain some mobility, things like that, take care of running whenever I could, arm care even, uh, was really influential to a really good junior year, as opposed to, you know, when you're a two-way guy, you have to, hit you have to take ground balls you have to run bases you have to uh you know do infield outfield and then maybe if things line up maybe get a bullpen in before the catchers leave things like that so yeah just being able to focus on that my junior year was huge and I think really influential to you know a big junior year and then getting drafted and 
you know, just sort of taking off when, when I got into program. You know, just hearing Josiah talk about that, I know we're talking about the collegiate level, but it kind of brings me back to the type of workload and schedule and regiment that a dude like Shohei Otani must go through. And yes, David, you mentioned it uh, an episode or two ago about that GQ story. I don't think we touch on Shohei Otani's just balance between scheduling for both roles that he serves with the Angels. People are like, oh, he's doing these things. But you don't see the the type of work that is going on behind the curtain, Josiah. How from afar? I mean, you, you yeah, you were pitching in the same town as Shohei Otani. What's it like watching a two way star like that coming from type of background you had, where you were playing shortstop and pitching at a pretty high level in college? It's amazing. It's amazing seeing what he does night in night out. But like you said, the scheduling piece and and even thinking about it a little bit more closely. You know, because of the COVID restrictions we had this past year, we weren't able to come into the park until I believe it was five hours before game time, maybe six. So for him, you know, to get all that work in before a seven o'clock game, that's pretty impressive. And I think beyond the stats and beyond the, you know, the accolades that he got this year, it shows the preparation that he probably has with everything he does. And I think, that, you know, makes me think of him even even higher. But, you know, what he's doing right now and, and what he's bringing to the game of baseball is unparalleled. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm excited to, you know, eventually play against him um, in a big league game and, and to see it firsthand. For the high schooler who maybe isn't being heavily recruited right now, wants to play at another level, the notion of, hey, D1, D2, Juco, NAIA, doesn't matter where you go. If you have the talent, you're going to be found. Do you believe in that with what that circuit has kind of turned into? I do to a degree. I think there are so many resources out there in terms of, you know, using your phone, using anything, and then, you know, blasting a video out there on Twitter or YouTube. But then I do also think there's a barrier, you know, for the tournaments and things like that just because of costs and, you know, those tournaments aren't cheap. I remember um, going down to perfect game and, you know, it was myself and my brother who's older than I am. And we were just like, man, this is not cheap to go down there, but we had a blast down there. But, you know, those experiences and those events aren't readily available to a lot of people. So I do think there's a lot of resources, but also the resources can be limiting at some times. Um, so, you know, for the guy, you know, that's getting lightly recruited, I say continue to build, you know, as much as you can of, of your video database of yourself playing the game and just continually blasting that on social media. And I think that can garner a lot of interest, maybe some offers and, and you know, take you a long way. Yeah, I got to ask you one question. I mean, it's... <clears throat> It's a question I like to ask, you know, all, all uh, young pitchers coming up. You know, for me, <clears throat> I was 12 years old in 1975, and that was the year that Louis Tiant was pitching for, for the Red Sox against the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series. Mm-hmm. And that was my moment for a 12-year-old kid. You know, I saw Louis Tiant pitch, and I went out in the backyard, played some wiffle ball, and I was Louis Tiant. Yeah. I had to pitch just like him. I emulated his style. You know, everybody's got that guy. For you, who's, who's your guy that – 
12-year-old Josiah Gray that's pitching in the backyard or Little League or wherever, any age, yeah. where you saw somebody pitch and said, that's me. That's who I want to be. That's who I'm copying. Uh, I'll always remember, you know, playing Little League and, uh, you know, where I'm from, you play a lot of the same teams. And basically this one team we would always play, um, a player I'd play against, his dad, you know, took a liking to me and all this stuff. So after every game, you know, we'd have good chats. And one day he threw at me, he was like, hey, in 10 years time or however long, you know, you're going to be Doc Gooden. And that has always sat with me from, I want to say I was around 12. Right. And just thinking about it now, I'm like, man, that's so awesome. But then on the other hand, you know, just watching TV, being growing up a Yankee fan, CC Sabathia, I think uh, obviously him being a lefty is a little different, but just, you know, that fire and the way, you know, he pitched and the way he commanded the game, I think, really resonated with me and made me want to go out there and be like, I want to be that. I want to command the game and I want to go out there and throw seven innings every fifth day, put us in a good position to win and repeat and win. So uh, Doc Gooden, CC, uh, were definitely two of the guys, you know, that I was like looked up to and wanted to, you know, pitch like and emulate. Great ones. Hall of Famers in my book, you know, CC Sabathia, especially the way he finished his career. Yes. Just remarkable. Yes. Absolutely. And just, I've, I've seen you've had a chance to meet CC with your work through uh, the Players Alliance. What's yes. what's it been like knowing him and how uh, how much of a relationship you've been able to kind of foster with CC? Yeah, it's been great. Uh, like you said, you know, we met at the Players Alliance event uh, two years ago now. Uh, but, you know, he's as open and as, you know, willing to help younger guys out as much as as. Uh, he can. So, you know, we've connected a few times and uh, he's been great, very gracious with his time. And uh, he's definitely a guy that, you know, I'm going to lean on, you know, say, you know, I'm having a good stretch of pitching and, you know, how do I, you know, ride it out as long as possible, but say, you know, I'm going through some things and I, I feel like I'm, you know, overthinking myself out there on the mound, you know, he's a great resource to, you know, chop it up with and, and kind of just pick his brain. So he's been great. And, uh, he knows how, how much of a uh, fan I was of him um, just in growing up in New York. And uh, he's been really good. He's been uh, awesome. Now, as we're talking and, and some of the things that you're, you know, you read about Josiah Gray, something that stands out to me is how inquisitive you are as a player. And we talk about kind of transferring the information you learn with the Dodgers over to the Nationals coaches, going over certain details with them. But what is it about pitching that I guess kind of makes you curious, especially with all this data that's in front of you? Uh, I think what makes me so curious about it is just you never are basically you never are fulfilled with what's out there. You know, there's always more, there's always something that you can learn, you know, whether it's something in terms of pitch metrics or approach or, just scouting reports, anything like that. Um, I think with the game of pitching, there's just so much more out there than we can think about and we can even, um, you know, put in our hands that I think makes me wake up every day like, "Ah, I want to learn more about that. I want to try and be the master of this. And I think that sort of inquisitive nature and wanting to 
you know, just be the best or try to attempt to be the best in terms of gaining that data uh, is what, you know, wakes me up every day and, and keeps me going in this game and, you know, just trying to be the best pitcher I can be. That never leaves you. That is a fantastic answer. It really never leaves you to this day. I've been obsessed with the spin on a baseball for my whole life, yes. holding a baseball in my hands and to this day. To, when I watch you pitch, you know, I pull, I pull up on Baseball Savant and pull, look at some of the random videos that are on there of you. I'm like, wow, that pitch is great. Okay, this one, this one he needs to get a little better shape on. He needs to work mm -hmm. on his changeup. But the stuff is there, and you never stop learning. You never stop uh, wondering how to make that pitch, how to make it move, right? How to, how, there's nothing more exciting than a new grip, too. I learned, I learned <laughs> a new grip, you know. I mean, to this day, I, I still get excited about it. So that, that's a fantastic answer, Josiah. I never lose that part because that, that curiousness, that, yes. that uh, never, never satisfied, always knowing that there's something else out there for you to pick mm -hmm. up and to learn and to glean from different sources. That, that is a key to your success right there. I can see why you've had the success you've had already to, to this point. Thank you. I, I think that also comes from just, you know, the natural, you know, you pick up a ball, you're just throwing it up in your hand and throwing it up and you're like, oh, let's see what this throw feels like, something like that. And I think that is what baseball players are ingrained with. And it's just about fostering that and, you know, keeping it going as you progress in your career. You know, I had a long talk with a doctor, uh, Barton Smith, who's uh, out at Utah State. And he's come up with a term called seam shifted wake, where cool. is, is there certain there's a certain type of spin that can create sort of unnatural or, or sort of above average movement on the baseball. And there, you know, the study of how a baseball spins, the study of the, how the seams affect the break, it's never ending. I mean, we've got some of the smartest people in the world studying this stuff yes. and it's helping our profession. It's you know, something about baseball and especially pitching mm -hmm. that lends itself to these kind of studies, this kind of information. It's all out there for you. We're seeing pitchers uh, make incredible leaps from, from year over year, depending yeah. on what kind of work you're putting in, uh, both not only physically, but uh, also uh, on, on the spin side of things. You know, learn how to spin a baseball. And uh, you got it, Josiah. So I certainly wish, wish you all the best uh, this year coming up. And, you know, uh, maybe we'll see you in New York in a New York uniform one of these days, too, <laughs> on down the road. You, you never know. Well, ne you never know. You never know. Are you going to, uh, when you come up to face the Mets, are you going to stay at the team hotel or are you going to go home to New Rochelle? I'll stay at the team hotel. Uh, but like last year, you know, we had an off day in New York. So I had, I headed back home for a little bit of a day, saw some friends. Uh, but yeah, you know, I always appreciate going back to the New York because, you know, we stay so close to Grand Central that, you know, I can take the, the train right in and New Rochelle and I'm like, man, I'm here, you know, playing the Mets, but you know, I'm taking the train as if, you know, I'm just getting lunch in the city. So it's, uh, it's always fun. And uh, it's definitely something I look forward to for years to come, be able to go home and see friends and family in the, in the thick of the season and, uh, you know, get dinner with them or anything like that. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but before we wrap this up, need to ask you, being around Juan Soto day to day, what's it like having him as a teammate? Uh, he's he's amazing. Uh, you know, we all know what he does on the field, uh, but, you know, his his work, his preparation is top notch. I, I see that guy every time, you know, I'm doing my stuff in the weight room. He's doing his stuff and, you know, he's more he's reserved like I am. So, you know, we're off in our own corner, but, you know, he's preparing to, you know, destroy the baseball that day. And, um, you know, he does it with the best of them. And I think 
he's going to continue to do it because I see the work. We all see the work, the preparation. And then on the field, you know, it's a really good eye, really good back control, really good power. Uh, I'm probably, uh, you know, selling them short here, but uh, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's going to be an eventual Hall of Famer. I think we all know that. And I'm glad that I'm not pitching against him. I'm glad he's on my team. And, uh, you know, I look forward to playing with him uh, for however long, you know, he stays in the Nats uniform. And, uh, you know, he's really fun to watch day in, day out. So you say he's most reserved off the field. He's most animated when he's in the batter's box then? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it's it's interesting, uh, you know, because I see it in myself as well, you know, just doing your daily stuff, you know, you're just to yourself. But then when you're out there on the field, something just clicks and, you know, you're another animal. You're just, you know, you're fiery. You're wanting the best for yourself, for your team. And I think um, I see that within myself. I see that within Juan. I see it within a lot of guys. And I think uh, we all know, you know, with the shuffle and things like that, he he definitely owns that batter's box and every pitcher knows it. And you got to bring your A game or he will he'll get you. All right, Josiah, before we let you go, one thing we're starting to do here is ask our guests, and we're trying to kind of connect with the baseball community as much as we can. Every guest that comes on here with this podcast, we want to end our chat by giving the guest the chance to ask something to an upcoming guest of the podcast. So we're going to tell you the name of a guest that we have coming up on the show, the very near future here, and you're going to have to quickly come up with a question to ask them. So, <laughs> right, cool. I, like um, I, I apologize. We don't have a question for you from a previous guest, because like <laughs> I said, this is kind of brand new. I like it. Jamison Tyone was our, our guinea pig and he had a oral a question for oral Hershiser who should be coming on shortly, but we're pretty excited with the way this kind of lines up because we know that you are a fan of this gentleman's work. One of our upcoming guests is pitching ninja rob friedman he's gonna be joining the show soon so what would you like uh-huh. to ask the ninja <laughs> that's a great uh great segment that you guys are doing but what would i like to ask the ninja man uh, <laughs> i have a funny one so uh when he got banned by twitter uh back when i was in college what was going through his mind why did it happen how did it happen sort of just I guess talk through it and like how did uh how did he transition because you know he was he was still in the up and up but he wasn't what he is today so I guess just take us through you know that Twitter ban even though he was pumping out the best content and uh you know kind of just talk us through it and and give us his take on it Guys, we may need to serve that up to Pitching Ninja at the, the very top. We may not have to wait for the end to uh, to ask him that because that's a that's a good question. That's kind of like, hey, tell us the story, and that's a perfect segue into that. So, Josiah, we thank you for doing the uh, the heavy lifting there. Absolutely, I, I really like that segment. I think that's unique because you know it, it kind of transitions you with a really good question, and you know the last person is going to remain engaged, and it's. I like it. That's really unique. Well, thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate you giving us some time here during your uh, during your off season as you try and get ready. And uh, congratulations on a a good first taste of the big leagues in 2021. We wish you massive success with the Nationals 
in 2022. And uh, hopefully we'll see you around in the New York area when you come up to visit with the Nats. Sounds good. Thank you guys for having me on. Yeah, wish you nothing but the best, Josiah. Great job. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, David. Thank you, guys. Guys, Josiah talking about running into Mariano Rivera doing errands every now and then in New Rochelle. Can you imagine running into Mo picking up his dry cleaning or getting behind him at the grocery line? He's, you know, he's Mariano Rivera is picking up a, a dozen eggs or so, and there he is waiting online. I can't picture that. I can't wrap my head around that. If you're in New, New Rochelle, you're going to see Mariano around. He's been there for years. He's entrenched in the community there. And as Josiah Gray told us, you know, he's, he, he found an abandoned church and renovated it and it has done remarkable charitable work in that area in New Rochelle and community centers and trying to make an impact on kids. And as a man of faith, you know, Mariano lives it. He just, he just doesn't talk it. He lives it. And, uh, you know, good for him, you know, to, to settle in that area and make a, you know, make such an impact on a community that Josiah Gray, a kid who grew up in New Rochelle can say, yeah, I see him all around. Yeah. I see him walking around. I see him around town and, you know, like it's no big deal. So that, that's a hall of famer walking around your town. Yeah, Josiah, you could tell he he grew up a Yankee fan. It, you know, he I you you think he has that that good uh that that good warm feeling about his hometown, likes being from New York, but you could tell he has ties to that Yankee fandom. So I, I would have to imagine whenever the Yankees and the Nationals, whenever that matchup with the divisions work out in interleague play, it's gonna be pretty special for him to come up to the Bronx. Uh, as a national and, and face the Yankees in Yankee Stadium, probably a place that he frequented uh, as a youngster in New Rochelle. All right, this week in pitching history, James, it is Hall of Fame season. I guess you could call it that. Hall of Fame announcements coming up this week. In years past, it's kind of run through the entire month of January. What do you have this week in pitching history? Well, that's the thing. It's, it's gotten moved up from uh from from years past so a lot of times it was that first week in january or even you know in the in the 18 20th 22nd range and now we're we're getting a little bit farther out so i'm going to go to january 29th 1901 121 years ago saturday it's another topic that you know has been coming up a lot uh in off-season chatter rule changes can't change the rules because this is the way it's always been right so in 1901, this week, the Rules Committee of Connie Mack, John McGraw, and Charlie Comiskey recommend no changes. But the big chatter at the time was that they were talking about banning or eliminate or limiting bunts, something that was so prevalent in turn-of-the-century baseball. AL President Ban Johnson had a statement uh, that I found published in the January 28th, 1901 edition of the Providence News. Now, bear with me because I'm going to read it. The rules will be changed so that the bunt hit will be abolished. The games have become too scientific of late, and for that reason, have lost their former attractiveness. Sounds familiar. By doing away <laughs> with the bunt or limiting the times when it may be used, Comiskey, Mack, and others say that there will be added interest. The chief aim in making new rules will be to increase the action of the game, thereby satisfying the demand of the public. Fantastic. Fantastic, James. You never cease to amaze me. You're right. Another science is ruining the game story that that we hear uh, that we, it's a perpetual argument. It's continuing. It continues to this day. So it's a I hamster it, wheel of time. It. Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And now they're saying we need to get more bunts in the game to make things exciting. But back then they were saying it was it was making the game boring. <laughs> you know something that we kind of forgot to ask Josiah because he was that two way player. He did get a hit 
in his rookie season. He, he got a hit. I think it was August 18th against the Blue Jays. He picked, he picked up an opposite field. Say, obviously not a bunt, but, um, you know, coming up in a related terms, you think pitchers, sometimes they lay down the bunt more frequently to kind of just go through the motions. But he, he slapped it the other way. He got a hit, but yeah, um, it, the bunts either a trend, you know, bunts either trendy to talk about or it's not. So that's kind of been the pattern through time. No, nineteen oh one though, going back away. Ban Johnson's not a name that you always, uh, you know, you hear about unless you're going back to the uh, early, early turn of the century. Uh, all right, three up, three down, as we close out the show here this week, and I think this is going to be a little bit different this week because it is hall of fame week it's kind of like a cumulative three up three down for all of us because the hall of fame is such a, a heavy subject right now if you are listening to this on the day we usually release every tuesday hall of fame announcement is coming up later on that evening but a lot of debate because it's year 10 for guys like bonds and clemens and and sammy sosa as well and kurt Schilling. A lot of drama around those names, a lot of drama and questions just around the whole voting process because of what the steroid era has done to the hall and how they feel about things. There's just so much to unwrap. But as we get to this announcement and maybe it comes to the announcement that, hey, no one's getting elected, right? There's so many outcomes. But for you, David, like what is what is the big question as it relates to the hall of fame that you would like to ask someone. And what do you think is the biggest question that I guess needs to be answered at this point in time? Well, everything is dominated by the, the PED era, obviously Uh, steroids. What do you do about it? Uh, The baseball writers have to contend with a a morals clause uh, in the criteria of the election process. Well, let me tell you something. I used to hang out at the hotel bars with a lot of those baseball writers, and I'm not sure they're the right guys to be handling a morals clause. They were right there with me, you know, hanging out (laughs) with the Mets in the 80s. So let me tell you something. Uh, Yeah, maybe they're not the right guys to to be uh, to be voting on morals clauses. So I I don't know about, you know, uh, them being burdened, the writers being burdened with that particular clause is, is an interesting debate that's been brought up by several very good writers recently. So that's the first thing. The second thing is there is still a great injustice on the bottom of the order. When you look at guys that can't even stay on the ballot, um, how about uh, um, you know if you look if you look at uh, Joe Nathan, one of the great closers. In, in, in his generation. Now you can debate on whether he, he merits a hall of fame consideration or not. He's right there. If you look at his numbers, he's got 2.7% of the vote. Really? You can't keep him on the he's ballot. He's going to fall off. Yeah. He's going to fall off the ballot. I mean, that's just to me a tremendous injustice, you know, at the bottom of the order and the fact that you're limited to voting for 10 players only. So you might think that there's a hall of famer that you think is worthy, but somebody else that's a surefire hall of famer, like a David Ortiz or somebody else comes on the ballot. Now you've got to make a choice because you're limited to 10 choices. That's another one that I kind of have a problem with. If you think you're a hall of famer, you should be able to vote for as many players as you want on the ballot. The fact that you're limited to 10 is a little curious to me. And then, and then certainly the representation of a generation to generation, you know, it's that, are we, are we, are some of the players from the 80s and 90s and even 2000s underrepresented in the Hall of Fame compared to decades past? So, you know, th- those, those are just some, some thoughts off the top of my head uh, in, in terms of the criteria, uh, 
the bottom of the the ballot guys uh, that that should be should be uh, given more consideration than they otherwise have been, and then obviously uh, the morals clause. You know, I, what is that? Yeah. And, uh, are the baseball writers the right ones to be to be uh, you know in charge of that? You know, the morals clause. Those guys I used to hang out with in the hotel bars. I don't know. I'm not so sure about that. I'm glad, I'm glad you had entailed it with that thought because look, I, I know a lot of writers, you know, so many of them are great at what they do. And a lot of them take this, it, it's a, a privilege that they, they look at it as, and they take it seriously. And I think oh, some of them take it way too seriously. And I don't, I haven't had to establish a hardened opinion on all this stuff because I'm, I knew I am never, never going to have a vote. Right. But the more, the, the steroid era guys have been on the ballot in recent years. The more hardened of an opinion I, I definitely have on, on what's going on. And I think it starts with a complete overhaul of the voting process. You know, just because it's been this way forever doesn't mean it's, it's the right way. You can change it. You know, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, basketball, hockey, they don't have writers solely judging who gets to go in and out of those gates to their respective hall of fames uh, i think hall of fame members and i know there's no perfect science here but i think the current hall of fame members there are 74 living hall of fame members should vote on who should join them because bottom line it's the sports issue it's baseball's issue it's not up to you know the rest of us for once i think with this it's, it's time to kind of clean up a mess because as much as i love this sport kind of always turn the other way with this and hoping that someone can absolve them from having to deal with this sore subject, this touchy subject. I don't know how James, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, and again, I, you know, all my writer friends out there that may be listening, appreciate you, but I think there's a better way to do it. I don't think there is a, a perfect way, but I think there's a better way. And I think it could start with just the guys who are already in there can decide who should join them or not. Well, they do have that to an extent with the uh, with the Veterans Committee. It's a smaller committee. Yeah. Um, earlier iterations of this were made up of more of the living Hall of Famers. And we got a lot of shutouts, even on the Veterans Committee side. Is it a matter of players, you know, back in my day, the guys nowadays aren't as good? I, I don't know. But I actually don't really have a problem with the writers as a whole. Every now and then you'll see a, a ballot get dropped by Ryan Thibodeau on, on, on Twitter and and people go, oh, what are they thinking? But because there's 400 ballots, it's kind of easy to get that washed out. And that way it, it's hard to get 75% of people to agree on anything. But I think this does a pretty good job of filtering out and getting a, a consensus. The problem, like Coney's mentioned with the, with the 10 player limit and with this backlog of you know not really having any clarity on the PED issue is, how how do we avoid things like Johan Santana falling off the ballot after one year? He had, at the very least, a borderline Hall of Fame career, one of the most dominant five to eight to 10-year stretches of any pitcher in his generation. And he was one and done. Coney, you were one and done. And that's something that happens when the Hall of Fame standards are too strict compared to years past. And mm-hmm. Coney, you mentioned this too, are, are, are the newer generations of players being limited compared to previous generations? So if you look at who are the regular batters and the regular pitchers in each era, 
you know, the dead ball era, the thirties and forties, all the way up to today, the pre-1960 players out of all hitters to get 5,000 plus plate appearances, about a quarter of them are in the hall of fame. Look at that same group from post-1960, it's like 10%. And you see that with pitchers, you see it with the game overall, the, the standards are getting stricter, even as people bemoan, oh, why is, why is it becoming the hall of very good? The, the standards are sometimes getting a little too strict. And then you wonder, how do we get, how do we get hall of fame shutouts? Yeah, I think about guys like you mentioned, uh, you know, the guys that are kind of uh, going to fall off the ballot after a first time this year, Joe Nathan, one of them, uh, David was one and done. Kenny Lofton, one and done. And and a guy like Kenny Lofton probably going to be right on the ballot and up for heavy discussion on the, uh, the you know, the veterans committee when, when his time comes and not too distant future. So I think the time has come for an overhaul, whether it is about the steroid era, whether it's not, I think, I don't know, David, how do you feel about that? Do you think there are enough Hall of Famers alive that can kind of decide who should be in there with them? Do you think that's a suitable way? I don't think there's a perfect way. I think we would have identified that by now. Yeah, no, I, it, it's it's a, a healthy debate to have. Um, I think you're right. You know, and James mentioned this, that it kind of falls on the, the Veterans Committee to clean up the mess that's left behind a lot of times. Uh, the problem with the players only voting is that there's internal bias with players. Um, certain, certain players. But don't you have that now? You do, you do. But you know, is, is that, would you want to put it all in the players laps to, to make this determination when there's still guys that I know I didn't like that I played against, you know, there, there's definite bias uh, inherent with, with some of the votes. So, uh, you know, the, the players sometimes might be the worst ones to vote because you're, you're, you know, even though they know the game as well as anybody, um, they, they were trained to dislike each other. They're trained. I, I don't, I, I didn't like facing that guy. I didn't like that player, you know, or there's something happened, you know, on a personal front with those players. Now, with that being said, uh, I still value their opinion. I don't know if I give them all the power, I, you know, and then maybe there's a hybrid between some writers and, and some players mm-hmm. that, that can work. Uh, the, the whole um, morals clause thing that, that goes right to the heart of, of steroids is, is a difficult thing to police for a lot of the writers. You know, I joke that maybe they shouldn't be the ones hanging out at the hotel bar, you know, tongue in cheek, but you know, that's a big burden for the writers to, to handle. And it's so uh, ambiguous at times. What does it really mean? You know, how far do you take that morals clause? And are we really going to be policemen or, you know, we're going to be the, the police to who did it and who didn't and who got in the hall of fame that did use it, that didn't get caught. You know, how do we really sort through this instead of just putting, an asterisk or a brackets around this whole era and this whole era, this is the PED era. And these are the players that were great and you can, you can quantify it any way you want, but Barry Bonds is the best player I ever saw play this game. I mean, he's arguably the best player ever. It was incredible. Now, you know, PED suspicion or whatever, whatever, it's well-documented out there. Go, go read the books. You know, it's out there. The same with Alex Rodriguez, you know, it's all out there. So what do we do with it? And who, who should be making those decisions and, you know, uh, who got in, who got out, who, who beat the system. That's really tricky. Very, very difficult. Uh, and I'm not sure that's fair to have the writers, you know, have that burden on their plate to be able to, to, uh, to figure this out, who deserves it, who doesn't uh, morals clause, the PED user. Oh, well, we th- think he was, but we're not sure. 
yeah, that that's a very unenviable position to be in if you're a writer and ha- and you've got you've got to deal with that criteria when you vote. And how yeah. do you draw the line between someone like Bonds or Clemens who have pretty well documented PED use, but in a time when it wasn't even against the rules and they had no testing? So, do you draw a line from the pre-testing era to the after-testing era? You see, Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez have much lower vote totals compared to Bonds and Clemens, maybe because there's a line to draw. These guys did it back when, you know, it was the wild west. And now other guys that actually were caught and suspended in a system, they get a demerit. If you remember uh, the the thing, the camel that broke, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, uh, is when Mark McGuire, some writer noticed that he had an over-the-counter Andro supplement in his locker that he bought a GNC. You know, it was, it, you know, is uh, he didn't even think of hiding it in his locker. That's what kind of started the whole thing of, okay, what are these players taking? And down the road of PEDs and what are the synthetic steroids? What is the difference between synthetic steroids and HGH and over-the-counter medication? You know, it's, there were blurred lines back then, James, you were, you were absolutely correct with, with that. I'm not making excuses. I'm not condoning anything. And it is what it is, but you know, how do, how do, how do we put all this on the writers? You know, I, I just think that's, that's kind of unfair, an unfair burden to them to have and, and to sort through. And, and it really falls along generational lines, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're a younger writer out there, you're probably a little more open-minded and that's the way the vote tally is really turned out. Uh, you're a little more, more open-minded to this issue. And if you're an old school writer that's been around 30 years, you're kind of set in your ways. And that, that this, this vote on the PEDs and the players that are suspected of using PEDs kind of breaks on demographic lines. I find that interesting that as we move forward, as, as the, the electorate turns over, you know, as the writers turn over, you know, maybe there'll be, there'll be a little different view of this on down the road. We didn't want to kind of deep dive on who we think should or should not go in the hall of fame this year. But the bottom line is that the, the steroid era has altered a lot of things in the sport of baseball. And I think it has brought the question of why should how people vote for who gets into Cooperstown remain the same here. I think it's, it's the sports issue. It's the halls issue. And like I said, I love baseball, but it's a game that has kind of always tried to have others clean up its mess with this specific subject. Now that it's at the forefront to a place as hollowed as the baseball hall of fame you got to come up with something different because what's happening right now isn't working. I think that we could all kind of agree to that. So we'll see what happens here on Tuesday night, who gets in, if anyone gets in something that we'll be uh, talking about down the road. And I'm sure you're going to hear about it all throughout this week. Before we wrap it up though, David, your quick thoughts on having to face Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC title game after that, I'm sure uh, battle between the Bills and Chiefs that left your heart in your throat. No, that was an unbelievable game. I mean, I don't know if you can describe that game. Maybe one of the greatest games you've ever seen. Uh, leaves you wanting more at the end. It's ironic that the Chiefs a couple of years ago were the ones complaining about the overtime rules when uh, they lost to the to the uh, Patriots in a similar fashion, where Patrick Mahomes didn't touch the ball at the end of the game, and <laughs> they were on the other end of the of, of the rope, so to speak. So it is interesting. Um, I, I think you do got to revisit that rule, right? The overtime rule. I'm not so sure. Sudden death, uh, something sexy about sudden death, but 
that kind of game to end like that, wow. Uh, but wow, 13 seconds, Patrick Mahomes pulls that out. That's just unbelievable. Unbelievable. The 13 seconds was less time than Dak Prescott's run. That was 14 seconds yes. I saw on Twitter earlier this right. year at the end of the game. So, wow. I mean, just, just remarkable game all the way through. Two great teams, two great quarterbacks. They're going to be going at it for a while. It's going to be fun to watch those two, those two franchises go at it. It's awesome that this this past weekend of NFL football was just I hate using the word unbelievable in this job when you're trying to describe and report on sports because I think it is really cliche. But my gosh, four games all decided on the last play. Three winners were the team that was on the road. It's just incredible. And yeah, I you know, chalk it up. I'll say unbelievable. It was it was terrific. So it should be getting even better, though, as, as we progress here with these uh, AFC title games. Definitely, I, I'm as interested in NFL football right now more than I have been probably in the last 10 years. And I think it's thanks to the quality of quarterback play that we've seen recently in the past three, four seasons. So it's, it's incredible. Hey, well, I want to give a big thanks to Josiah Gray for joining us here this week. Uh, shout out to him and best of luck in 2022 with the Nationals, his first full season with the Washington Nationals. Also, big thank you going out to our great producer, Dan Rourke, getting it done each and every week. Always a fine job by Dan. Please be sure, rate, review, subscribe. It is the best way that you can support the show here, and you do not want to miss anything we do here on Toe in the Slab. New episodes dropping each and every Tuesday. Toe in the Slab, pitching with David Cohn, is a production of John Boy Media. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. Take care.